Okay, so um, I, I do appreciate that setup because it accords with some of the opening material we talked about when it comes to loving God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and what this means in terms of what we're doing in this class. So uh, three claims I want to make about this in terms of the practicality of what we've been talking about and where we're going. So the question, how shall we live in light of all of this material? Well, if we're thinking about loving God with all of these capacities that we have, um, in terms of heart, we're talking about choosing to trust God's ways over anyone else's, over our ways, over the world's ways. In terms of soul, which in a biblical paradigm, it means something like your embodied life, kind of what emerges out of that. We're talking about creating the conditions of shalom, the conditions for God's glorification in the world. And in terms of mind, we're talking about it actually being important to know the content and claims of the Christian witness and to be able to articulate those to other people, to share them. So each of those are are vital to what it means to do something missionally with this material. Okay, so um, to recap just a bit, we talked about in Genesis, God creating humanity in his image and placing, literally the language is something like resting them in the garden. That language is really important because we've said uh, creation culminating with Sabbath rest and God placing us in Eden in a kind of state of rest is uh, a clue to what it means for us to be human, what our destiny is, what our whole purpose, the whole purpose of creation is. It is to move towards this kind of Um, place where we dwell with God and one another with the creation itself in a state of harmony and peace so uh, the world was created good but not perfect that means it is not yet finished we are to partner with God in moving it towards this this is what uh, theologians call its telos essentially it's kind of orienting goal okay that kind of gives purpose to the rest of it Um, So we've said, we we tracked last week what happened at the fall, which is that um, we were created with the freedom to live into our relationship with God and each other. We were also created with the freedom to say no to that and to choose the way of, uh, you know, we've had this choice between wisdom and folly, a choice between life and death. Humans have chosen the way of death um, by choosing to trust in themselves, to try to become autonomous. Um, rather than imaging God, we want to create our own images. And so, just as the world was created with this dynamism to move towards its telos, its goal, which is uh, the conditions of shalom, it also has the potential of moving away from that. So, in the beginning, you can think of it as something like, not exactly a neutral state, but a place with potential to grow in one direction or another. And uh, when chaos enters with the people who are supposed to partner with God to expel the chaos from creation, instead have exacerbated it, have invited it in, have made it worse. And so things are now moving, kind of spiraling downwards into, into a kind of folly and death. So we frame that in terms of how God speaks to the consequences of sin in Genesis 3, 14 through 19. That's uh, four things. One, disrupted relationship with God. Two, disruption within the self. So that's like self-loathing, anxiety. You might say something like mental illness, right? Three, disruption of human community. Now we will be fighting with each other, both male versus female, and uh, the violence that comes uh, when we fight each other in, in war and conflict. 
And then uh, fourth, disruption within the creation or cosmos itself. Now it will fight back. There will be thorns in the soil. So the fall, we use this language of fall, but we shouldn't think of that as something like a state of perfection that falls into a state of just utter disrepair. It's something more like um, this kind of downward spiraling. And there's always potential in terms of sanctification for us to move back into the upward spiraling, but we need grace for that to occur. Uh, because now we are no longer in a kind of natural relationship with God. Now we need the graced relationship with God that occurs. So um, important episodes that occur after the fall are that are kind of clues to this are Cain and Abel, uh, the story of the flood, and the story of Babel. So from Genesis 3 to 11, we see this de- degeneration into a broken, fallen, depraved image of God. Rather than spreading Eden throughout the earth, humans are spreading evil and violence. Um, so it occurs to the point where we see God grieving over what has happened. And uh, we see Noah in the midst of all this as a righteous man. And so that reminds us that grace is still in the creation itself. So, um, and backing up, thinking about what happens in the story of Cain and Abel, um, even with the violence of the first murder, there's still grace for Cain. God still wants to protect Cain to see him live and flourish. And we see something similar here. Rather than just utterly destroying the world, God finds in Noah the potential to kind of start over, to wipe the slate clean. So Noah has the potential to be the second Adam, to get things back on track, the track of wisdom. Uh, But we know how this turns out. Just as Adam and Eve are given a choice, so is Noah. And even after the cleansing of the flood, we have another degenerative spiral, right? That culminates with the Tower of Babel, where we literally have something like the purposes uh, of God for his people being turned on its head. God created us for a relationship with him, to be imagers of him in the world. At this point, we have humans saying, we have become our own gods. We are autonomous. We can build a tower all the way to heaven and reach the gods. So there's some, this building that they want to build, the ziggurat, is something like a tribute to their own greatness. And so God intervenes, uh, dis- disrupts their languages, confuses them so they cannot do this work. And in that intervention, we see that God is still transcendent, and God does not give up on seeing the world move towards God's purposes. This all eventually leads us to Genesis 12, where we find Abram, who is elected and chosen in a different sort of way than Adam and Eve were, than Noah was. And so we'll pick up there soon in in talking about what election is and what it means to be chosen as God's elect people. But I am wanting to speak into a little bit about what this has to say about us and our living and how we're going to kind of think about how this story is not just something relegated to the past, just some sort of ancient tale. It's something that has to do with who we are, what our vocation is in the world. This story is our story, our personal story. So one thing I would say is that our vocation is still the same. It's the same vocation that Adam and Eve had, that Noah has, and that Abram has, Abraham, when he becomes Abraham. And so we can frame that in terms of a couple of things. One would be that we're created in God's image. The second would be uh, in Genesis 1, 28, when, when God says, uh, you should, let's see, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So what do we hear there? Um, first of all, if we're, we're filling the earth with images of Eden, there's this expansionistic function. So to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that's what we're doing. Filling the earth with images of Eden, of God with us, of shalom. So that means working to reverse the conditions of sin when sin enters the garden. So working to see uh, the conditions wherein God can be glorified, wherein we're working against the diseases that humans have that lead to death, including mental illness and brokenness within systems of uh, relationship with one another. This also includes something like a creative function. So we hear the language of subduing and having dominion over the earth. Sometimes we can hear that in terms of something like, oh, so we have free reign to do whatever the heck we want. Uh, We can destroy ecosystems. We can kind of rape and pillage the resources of the earth. That's something like the opposite of what is actually being said here, okay, in terms of their their, uh, function in creation. The human function in creation is one of caretaking, So subduing means something like bringing about order creatively within the cosmos. So think about how you would uh, cultivate a garden and tend it, and you you pull up the weeds. That's the kind of work we're to be doing, not just doing whatever we want with the resources here. Um, And then having dominion over is something like a managing or caring function. Uh, We have such broken images of power that we hardly know how to have dominion in a way that is actually fruitful and beneficial for all involved. But we see images of this in scripture, um, of course, most of all in Jesus Christ, but in Psalm 72, which is an enthronement psalm, celebrating the king, there's this kind of call into what it means to have the right sort of dominion. This is someone who helps the weak, who empowers the marginalized. And um, so there's a sense in which that's our call as well. We are to have that kind of dominion in creation. So in other words, we are to use our agency in a way that works towards systems of justice. So we all have power. We are to use that power to see things get better rather than just saying, oh, there's nothing I can do about this. I I don't really have any. What am I supposed to do in the face of these great systemic evils? Well, we're supposed to get to work and be part of the solution. Uh, There's also a priestly function here. Priests are to represent God in creation, to call creation to worship and praise. This is what we find in the Psalm 148. Um, We're calling all of creation to praise God. And unfortunately, creation has to teach us to praise most of the time. And that is not the way things are supposed to be. So uh, part of our vocation is to create the conditions not only for life to occur, but for God to be glorified, which is something pretty specific. It's not just about making things better in general, but it's about seeing the flourishing of all, of all things. So... It's the human being fully alive, right? Um, So in terms of the image of God, and then I'm going to turn things over to Josh, just really quickly, I would say that's two things. One, uh, the image points to the real thing. So it's like a painting in that sense. A really good painting reminds you of the experience of the real thing, right? So an excellent painting of, um, you know, a kind of nature scene evokes for you the feeling you have when you're standing before that scene yourself. So that's the sort of image that we bear. We are to remind people of God. We are not supposed to be images to be worshipped ourselves, but rather to point back to the source of our existence. Um, Secondly, uh, an image is something like a reflection. So we have these kind of creative capacities that mirror God's. 
and it can continue God's work and God's ways. If you think of a mirror image, when you have multiple mirrors that kind of refracts and you keep seeing the image endlessly, that's the kind of work we are to be doing. So um, we are given a sort of privileged status in creation, but it is a privilege to serve. And that kind of vocation is echoed even in the, like when we see the covenant uh, relationships with the Israelites and then into how that extends into the church's life. Um, We are given the vocation to serve. We have a kind of privileged status. But when we talk about election in terms of who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, I think we get it pretty wrong. Our election is an election to do God's work in the world. So um, there's a kind of privilege associated with that, but it doesn't mean we're the ones who are the frozen chosen, so to speak, right? (laughs) Okay, I'm going to turn things over to Josh. I somehow managed to do that. All right. um, So to think a little bit about uh, how we might understand sin in light of these first chapters of Genesis, we think about, as, as Lauren has helped us think, about Eden as this place of, of harmony. I kind of think of it as paradise, Eden as this place of both harmony and life. So you have harmony between God and humans, uh, humans and humans, and humans and creation. So God and humans, humans and humans, humans and creation. So there's this harmony between God and humans. They are walking God is walking with them. There's this kind of intimacy. They are naked before him, which seems to suggest uh, that there's no shame, uh, this kind of comfort. Think about my kids running around naked in the house uh, with, with us and with their siblings. Um, and the, the kind of comfort level that, that's expressed in this. There's harmony between humans and humans. Remember how Adam and Eve, they were seen as partners. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Um, he recognizes Eve for the helper that uh, is this kind of equal partner sharing the image of God with him. And then between humans and creation, they are caring and ruling, uh, as Lauren was saying. It's kind of this kind of priestly serving function. Uh, and then they had access to the tree of life. So it doesn't necessarily mean then that humans were immortal, but even if they were mortal, they had access to a means of life. Uh, and then uh, as sin enters, as they, they take from the tree, um, you see the, the kind of reverse of this you get this picture of brokenness in these three areas, between God and humans, humans and humans, humans and creation, and death. So, no longer are they uh, comfortable around God, they are hiding, they are ashamed. Uh, Humans and humans, no longer is this bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, uh, (coughs) but it is her fault, right? And there's going to be this rivalry where um, she will desire him, uh, which that language gets picked up later. She'll desire him, uh, where sin is desiring to rule over Cain. So this is not about um, desire for intimacy and the curse or the this pronouncement of what's going to happen or sexual desire. This is desire to rule, and he's going to rule over her. This is no longer co-partners, co-simply recognized co-image bearers, but this... Um, friction here between what was supposed to be this beautiful oneness. The two will become one. Now the two will fight for dominance. And between humans and creation, going from tending and caring and bringing order to thorns and thistles uh, and so forth. That is, that is pictured there. So sin brings this, this kind of corruption and then death follows uh, as they are no longer have access to the tree. Um, 
And this seems like a wise thing because uh, what happens as sin enters is you get this spread of sin that goes uh, both wider and deeper as it plays out. Um, so you see this kind of pervasiveness of sin. It's pervasive, it goes wider and deeper. So it spreads from these two individuals um, and it seems to affect the created order, institutions like marriage. All humanity ends up feeling some of these consequences, but it also deepens. So you have taking fruit, that was bad, but then soon their kids, one son murders the next one. And then you follow Cain's line and you have Lamech who's not only uh, guilty of one murder, but he's talking about sevenfold vengeance that he's going to take. And then we get to chapter 6, before the flood, and, uh, and the Genesis author writes, Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil. Earth was corrupt and full of violence. So the, the picture of sin we get here is not just bad choices, uh, but it has this, this force uh, that pervades and it, it increases. Um, and so things just get worse and worse, that kind of spiral Lauren referred to. Um, if we think of sin as a passive kind of thing that I have control of, then we're not getting a biblical view of sin. Sin is active. So that language of uh, right before as Cain is tempted, you can see the kind of hate building. Uh, sin is crouching at your door waiting to devour you. That is the view of sin uh, that we should, um, we should hold on to as Christians. This powerful force uh, that is seeking to bring uh, chaos. So if the original um, human vocation was to care uh, and to take the good creation and make it even better, there is no sin and evil and brokenness, although there is room to grow. Now you have not only that room to go from good to better, but you add brokenness in the midst of that. So our vocation as image bearers who care and serve, now we not only have our original role, uh, but we have that, that same kind of practices of caring and serving, but we also do it to tend to the brokenness uh, that has entered into our world <coughs> as we seek to bear the image of God faithfully. Um, let me touch on the idea of original sin uh, for a moment. Uh, as I understand it, um, Augustine got us into trouble here as he was translating the Latin um, in Romans 5. Um, in Romans 5, he was reading about Adam, and he was reading in the Latin. Uh, his translation was, in Adam, in him, all sinned. And so he took that to mean uh, that uh, as Adam sinned, all humanity that uh, is genetically related to him inherited <coughs> the guilt of that sin. And so we're all born guilty and condemned. Uh, but in fact, the Greek is not, in him we all sinned, and therefore inherited guilt, so we're born uh, liable to punishment, which seems kind of like a ripoff. Um, uh, but it's in this way, all sin. As Adam sinned, in this way, we all sin too. Uh, so we inherit not the guilt, but we inherit a world that's broken. And in some ways, we inherit, uh, you might say, hearts that are a little broken, um, but not the guilt. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Um, that's, so we are not born guilty, but we are born into a world um, and with hearts that at least in some ways leave us uh, more prone to sin. And so like Adam, 
who sinned and accrued his own guilt, so we all sin and accrue our own guilt. Um, so I think that's a, a helpful clarification there. Um, so one, one other thing, and we wanted to make some space for, um, for questions today. The, uh, the flood account falls in the middle of this, and the way it's told, it almost sounds like a, a new creative event. Um, so uh, the earth is full of violence, and so God sends waters over the earth. And the way that water is described is, is similar to how you get in verse 2 of Genesis 1 uh, with, with this kind of watery chaos covering, and then order is brought back to it. Um, and there are, there are three primary ways that the Genesis flood account is understood, and I'm not going to advocate for one, just going to tell you maybe um, the three ways it gets read, and then more importantly, the theology we might get from that. Uh, one uh, way is that the flood account in Genesis 6 through 8 is taken as a literal historical event, something that really happened where the entire earth was covered with water. Um, and this seems to fit the biblical picture of a worldwide flood, um, but it doesn't, uh, many scientists say, there's just doesn't fit the fossil evidence, the geological evidence. It's hard to make work. Uh, others are saying, no, the Bible is telling about a local flood, not a kind of worldwide flood, uh, which better fits the ge geological evidence. However, when you read the scripture, it does really seem like the mountaintops are covered. Um, and so a third way of trying to fit these two together is to say, no, the Bible is describing a worldwide flood, but it's using this kind of um, motif in the ancient world about a worldwide flood, and it's doing theology with that. So it's not, it's more like a parable. Uh, and so, for instance, I think it's uh, Utnapishtim uh, and the Enuma Elish, who uh, the whole world is flooded, some god warns him this is going to happen, builds a big boat, puts some animals on it, boat rests on a mountain, he sends out some birds. When they don't come back, he goes and makes these sacrifices. And so one way of reading this then is the Genesis authors are saying, you've heard that story. Let us tell you what it's really like. Let us tell you uh, the, what God would do in a situation like that. So in the ancient Near East account, why do the gods flood the world? Because humanity is noisy and annoying. So you have these capricious gods. They are getting on our nerves. Let's wipe them out. They're like pests. But what does the Genesis Yahweh, why does he do it? Because the earth is corrupt and full of violence. Every inclination of the human heart is evil. You already see how they're saying, you think this is how the story should be told? No. No, our God is not capricious. Our God um, responds to evil and sin and violence. Um, when uh, in that account, um, what happens is the gods decide, we're going to kill them all. And then one god sneaks around and warns some guy. But in the Genesis account, God does not desire just the end of it all, but he wants to start again. Uh, so you see this, these elements of grace that aren't in the ancient account. As the waters are covering the earth in that ancient Near Eastern account, guess what happens to the gods? They get hungry because they don't have any food to eat because it's all underwater. Uh, and so they're saying, what were we thinking? We shouldn't have done this. Right? Their gods are kind of stupid uh, and they're rash. But for Genesis, it's no. He knows what he's doing. He is in control. He's not doing these kind of knee-jerk reactions that lead to regret, uh, but he has a purpose behind this. And so when the waters recede in that ancient Near Eastern account and, um, 
and uh, the hero uh, um, makes a sacrifice. The gods, it says, swarm the sacrifice like flies. They are so hungry and so desperate and so pathetic. But in, in the Genesis account, it simply has a pleasing aroma. So, you tell your story about your capricious gods uh, who, who destroy humanity because it was getting too noisy, and then they realize how foolish they are and they get really hungry. But that is not our God. Our God is in control. Our God responds to evil and sin uh, in just judgment. And when the waters cover the earth, he's not hungry because he doesn't need us. And when a sacrifice is offered to him, he can receive it in gratefulness and not in need. That's some powerful theology there in the ancient Near Eastern world that continues to speak today. God judges sin. And God doesn't need us, although he can appreciate our gracious responses to him. So we see the pervasiveness, the increasingly corrupt um, experience of sin. We see God's justice, but also these elements of grace. He is just with Adam and Eve. When they sin, he pushes them out, but he is still gracious to them. He covers them with clothes. He is just when Cain kills Abel. He sends him into exile, but he gives them this mark to protect him. He is just uh, when he... Um, destroys the world that is full of violence, but he is gracious in saving Noah. He is just uh, when he responds to those who are building the Tower of Babel, uh, but he is gracious as well, because in the next chapter, whereas the people of the Tower were trying to make a name for themselves, he calls Abraham and he's going to make a name for Abraham. This is our God who is just and gracious and good, um, and it is quite different uh, from the gods of the past and I would say uh, even the gods who are quote-unquote gods of today as well. Um, good. We were aiming for 1040 to give uh, a little time. So uh, before we, we kind of open it up to just general comments, uh, we thought it'd be good, why don't you join me up here, um, to open up to clarification questions. So are there things where we covered a lot of material that you say, I didn't understand this, or did you really just say that, um, that we can maybe clarify? Yes. Wouldn't it be more accurate when we talk about sin being spread and being active to also maybe talk about Satan, or are we just kind of lumping all of those in together? Um, do you want to take this one? Or? <laughs> <laughs> so, because we're, we're following, um, we're kind of focused on Genesis right now, and Genesis doesn't, it kind of un, unfolds in the biblical story about this the spiritual power and the satanic power behind that. You really get that in the New Testament. Uh, and so I think once you read the New Testament and you know what's going on, then absolutely there is a spiritual force at work here. We just haven't emphasized that because of, of our somewhat chronological move through it. But yeah, gotcha. totally. Okay. Yeah, sin is not uh, unrelated to that. I think it's, it's part of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you were talking about uh, sin... Uh, in relation to Adam, how that affects us. Um, could you just kind of uh, further kind of what you mean about the practical difference between being born with sin compared to being born with, I guess, like an inclination to sin? Well, that's your turn now. You passed in the first one. Um, so I would say the difference is um, you might say rather than our nature being corrupted, our existence is. So hum the human essence itself 
isn't uh, necessarily cursed. It's more that our existence is now cursed. So we now live under this weight of the broken world that we inherit. So if you think about, um, it's almost like kids, our kids are born into an impossible situation. There's no way that they have the conditions they need to flourish and not sin. You might think of it like that. And so um, the, the Christian tradition is such that it says it's sort of inevitable that we will sin, but it's not necessary. So um, uh, sin isn't part of what it means to be human, else God couldn't have become human. So that's sort of one way to think of it. And the other piece is, and the one we're inheriting guilt from the moment we're conceived, and the other we're just inheriting a kind of broken disposition. So it's part of the reason, those of us who believe this, one of the reasons maybe we don't do infant baptism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the only, but it's, it's one of those reasons. Who else? Other clarification questions? We've done this good of a job on yeah. this controversial yeah. stuff. <laughs> Yeah. I missed last week because I talked to Lauren the week before, but you said something about the um, in the garden and we had access to the tree of life. And so several years ago, rereading, I noticed that you know there were two trees that they had access to, but fast forwarding to the Revelation yeah. story, there's only the one. And so I was asking, wondering about there's no tree of knowledge of evil in the mm-hmm. New Jerusalem, only the tree of life. And so what does that mean for, if you think about the knowledge of tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, meaning the, the choice mm-hmm. and whether that is absent. Mm-hmm. Um, as I, I mean, that's a great, that's really helpful that you notice these differences. So some people, I think, understand it as the tree of knowledge of good and evil was almost a temporary kind of thing. That wasn't just about uh, an arbitrary choice between good and evil, but that um, they weren't ready for that tree. They haven't matured. Uh, they, they needed to be trusting God to teach them good and evil uh, and to mature them. And so when we get to that new heavens and new earth, we, will be, we won't need that because God will have already prepared us or matured us to that point. Um, I, that could be what's symbolized there. Yeah, I think that's right. It has to do with, for those of you who were here last week, that quote by Augustine about the freedom we will have when we are in the new Jerusalem in heaven will be the freedom of uh, not being drawn to sin, not being tempted by sin. So, yeah, there will no longer, we will have matured to the point of no longer, um, the knowledge of good and evil will no longer be a point of vulnerability for us, right? That we will have been so solidified in choosing the good that it will no longer be a kind of drawback towards uh, choosing what is wrong. Yeah, I suspect that there is, Adam had this good disposition, but it went wrong. We inherit something of a broken disposition that goes wrong. We will be given something of Christ's disposition, which is greater than Adam's, uh, which allows us then a new kind of freedom that wasn't possible uh, even for Adam. Uh, Not because Adam's was bad, but it's not like what we get from Christ, the new and greater Adam. Other comments or questions? Yeah. Just kind of opening it up. I thought there'd be more hands than we could get to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Chris, you have a comment? No. No. This is scratch. So you discuss with the three different versions of how people view the blood, the uh-huh. third one of it being you know, a parable of story. 
uh, and a lot of people see like the creation story the same yeah. way. It's more you know parable the seven days, mm -hmm. not literal days. So at what point do we? How do how do we determine which stories in the Bible are you know parables and stories and which mm -hmm. ones are true? And how do we? Is if it's just based on which ones you disagree with science? You know, right. Yes. You say Jesus didn't literally come back from mm -hmm. the dead. Samson wasn't literally that strong. Mm -hmm. how, do, how do we determine? Yeah, that is an incredibly important question. Uh, and uh, it is not a matter of this doesn't fit science, therefore we reject it. I mean, science doesn't fit people rising from the dead, and yet we see that as non-negotiable as Christians. So part of it has to do with trying to uh, closely pay attention to what the genre is. So when you're looking at something like Genesis 1, or the flood narrative, there are certain clues there for people who study this that suggest this genre is not giving us literal history. But when you get to something like the Gospels, they're doing something much more like what we think of as history. Uh, so that's, that's one piece of it. Um, another is kind of like C.S. Lewis said, knowing uh, what theologians have thought through and wrestled with, they have helped us kind of understand these are non-negotiables, and some of these aren't. Um, so that is the very brief answer, but I, I suspect we'll keep coming back and maybe even develop that. Next semester we're doing a class called uh, Orthodoxy and Heresy, uh, where we'll, we're going to take on that, that big idea uh, throughout. So I'm glad you're asking that. Please don't hear, if it disagrees with science, we reject it. Um, or if it's uncomfortable, we just call it fable or something. That's, that's a terrible approach. Uh, but rather, what is the, what is the text helping us to do as we interpret it? What is the tradition teaching us? And then what does that open or close for us? Maybe. Let's see, we have maybe one last comment or question and then we'll... So you mentioned that Telos, this pursuit in a direction, um, can you speak a little bit more about that in terms of the garden and the kind of like, especially like the, create, the impact on creation of that? In the brokenness. Yeah, I mean, again, a long conversation, but it, what seems to be implied there is that there is some sense in which the whatever work we had to do in creation, like tending and tilling and keeping, was exacerbated by creation fighting back in some sense. Okay. So now there's a kind of, there's a way in which, like if you think of thorns in the soil, we might even, some theologians think about that in terms of uh, natural disasters being worse or there being a kind of um, maybe like disease in creation that's harder to, to combat, to expel from it. So, and then we find, you know, all of creation is groaning in expectation of the children of God to be realized and, and revealed. So there's a way in which the remaking of the heavens and earth in the end will be some sort of um, resurrection of the created world itself, like a, a way that expels even that kind of evil Anything you'd add to that? Uh, the, yeah, there, that's, this is part of the question mark that, we're, that I think those of us who read scripture closely and are trying to pay attention to science um, are, are trying to, to bring together because it, it does seem as though there was already what we might call natural disasters long before humanity shows up on the scene. So it doesn't seem like it's simply the result of human sin. So it's either that's just part of the chaos that was not evil but part of there or it is a... Uh, an earlier spiritual kind of evil messing with some of the, the good and God is, is working along with it to bring good even out of the, you know, so 
floods or tectonic shifts end up he creates life from these <coughs> things that maybe were meant to create chaos so but the the final picture is that god's will is for those things to be resolved that for li- they're, they're the conditions of life that's very appropriate for you yeah. Uh, yeah yeah our ecologists yes all right thank you all